You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 13th. I'm John Villarreal from Drake University. Here is the first story. $75 million promised for school safety but not delivered by Ryan Foley. The June 2022 announcement was addressing the parents horrified by the massacre at an elementary school in Irvald, Texas. Iowa would spend $75 million in federal pandemic relief funds to improve school building security. Citing an urgent need to act after Irvald and shootings outside a high school and a church in Iowa, Government Governor Kim Reynolds said the state should award up to $50,000 each to 1,500 schools to fix vulnerabilities. Like many other Republicans, she rebuffed calls for stricter gun control while embracing efforts to harden schools. More than 19 months and two deadly Iowa shootings later, the money only received the money only recently started to trickle out, with the vast majority still unspent. This was partly because local officials struggled to meet state and federal requirements to complete their applications according to records reviewed by the Associated Press contractors helping run the program while, meanwhile, have received millions. The AP found that most schools statewide have yet to receive funding, including those in Perry, a city of 8,000 people where a January 4th school shooting left two dead and several injured. A state agency last week sent a representative to help Perry district officials finish their application for a $150,000 grant through uh, Kim Reynolds' program. The district had started the process more than a year ago and didn't complete the paperwork. Students arrive at Perry Middle School Thursday, January 25th, 2024, in Perry for the first time since a high school student opened fire in a shared cafeteria, killing two people and injuring six others. There's a dim-lit photo of uh, five people entering a Perry Middle School. There's a sign above it. Quote, After the tragedy in Perry, we are continuing to look for opportunities to make the effort more efficient and effective. End quote. Said Allie Bright, spokesperson for the Iowa Department of Homeland Security and Emergency Management, which oversees the program. Colin Compton. A spokesperson for the governor noted that until a, dis- until a district submits an application, the state cannot take any action. Perry's $150,000 is among $20.6 the state has awarded for upgrades at hundreds of school buildings across Iowa, but payments for completed work have been far less to date. Bright said that as of January 19th, the program had paid $950,000 to 18 school districts for improvements at 43 buildings, most of them small and rural. The district in Gilbert received the most 
which is $194,000, which went toward surveillance cameras, new entry systems, and door controls. Winfield Mount Union Community School District, which recently announced it will cut back to a four-day school week in the next academic year, added cameras and panic buttons with its $100,000 that they were granted. Other eligible expenses included metal detectors, locks, alarms, and notification systems, security lighting, reinforced doors and windows, barriers, and fences. Perry officials expressed interest in the grant in, two, in 2022 and, ex, and completed assessments on buildings as required a year ago. Superintendent Clark Wicks didn't return messages seeking comment on why the applications was not finished before the Perry High School shooting. It is unknown whether additional security could have been prevented 17-year-old Dylan Butler from opening fire in the cafeteria before classes began. Investigators hadn't revealed how Butler obtained the shotgun and handgun he used. Perry's superintendent was credited at an assistant principal and activated an emergency alert that resulted with a quick response by police and found Butler dead. Perry Elementary and middle school students who returned to school this week saw tighter security, including uniformed officers and limited entry points. Some parents have called for additional measurements, such as metal detectors and district officials are considering how to spend the grant money. Similar concerns were raised after the January 2023 shooting at Starts Right Here, a Des Moines alternative school for at-risk youth. Preston Walls was sentenced last week to 65 years in prison for killing fellow student 18-year-old Gianni Dameron and 16-year-old Rashad Carr. Relatives of Dameron and Carr are suing the school, alleging inadequate security that school, like others affiliated with the Des Moines District, the state's largest, has not received any grant funding. Bright said starts right here is not eligible for the program because it's not accredited, but that her agency is working with the school to apply for a different federal security grant. Des Moines School's spokesman, Phil Roeder, said the district needs to update a purchasing policy to meet federal requirements to receive the roughly $3 million it requested. The school board is expected to do that in February. Iowa authorities have reported a surge in school threats since the Perry shooting, which killed 6th grader Amir Jalif and Principal Dan Marburger and injured several others. Threats in West Des Moines, Davenport, and Lenox led to criminal charges and another briefly shut down the St. Ansgar District. Thirteen districts were targeted last week by swatting calls in which someone makes a prank call to emergency services to prompt a response at a particular address. Against the drumbeat of threats and shootings, security funding is popular with lawmakers and parents even as research debate whether the measures reduce gun violence. Iowa's 327 districts and 183 non-public and independent schools 
still have until October 1st to apply, and most have started that process. Bright said, once approved, the, they have through 2024 to designate money for projects in 2025 to get work completed and seek reimbursement. The maximum per building is $50,000 regardless of enrollment. Moving on to our second article of the day. Casinos raise funds for animal groups from Midlands Humane Society, written by Mariah Garcia. Harrah's and Horseshoe Council Bluffs recently awarded Midlands Humane Society Muddy Paws Second Chance Rescue and promised four Paws Senior Dog Sanctuary checks for $3,145.50 after raising a total of $9,436.50 from the two casinos. Make to Chang, or quote, Change to Make Change program. Change to Make Change is a charitable campaign which allows Hara and Horseshoe guests to donate any unused slot tickets as well as cash, coins, and chips into donation boxes at both properties to support local nonprofit organizations. For the fourth quarter of 2023, all proceeds collected were donated to three local charities and support animals and pets. Midlands Humane Society is the first nonprofit humane society in Council Bluffs serving both the city of Council Bluffs and Pot pa, bear with me Pot Awadami County since its opening in twenty fifteen. MHS strives to provide the community with a comprehensive animal welfare center offering a safe and comfortable environment for the animals, excellent standards of care, proactive adoption services, and a diverse array of volunteer opportunities, community outreach, and public education programs, both on and off-site. Midlands Humane Society is located at 1020 Railroad Avenue in Council Bluffs. For more information on adopting, volunteering, and upcoming events and donating, visit www.midlandhumanesociety.org Muddy Paws Second Chance Rescue is an all-species rescue and believes that every pet deserves to be happy and loved. Their goal is to give a second chance to any pet who needs it. They provide foster homes when a pet needs a safe, loving place to stay until they find their forever home. Muddy Paws offers education and training to resolve behavioral issues with the goal of keeping pets in their homes. They also maintain a pet food pantry for those needing assistance feeding their pet and assist disqualified or assist qualified owners with veterinary expenses needed to save a pet's life or restore their quality of life. For information on adopting, volunteering, upcoming meet and greets and events, and donating, visit www.muddypawsecondchancerescue.com. Promise for Paws Senior Dog Sanctuary is, as the name suggests, a sanctuary for senior dogs. Their mission is to provide a loving, home-like environment for senior dogs for the remainder of their lives. Their continuous strive to keep the dogs' lives as normal as possible and give them the love that they deserve 
when you visit the sanctuary, you won't see dogs in kennels. You'll see dogs roaming the yard, napping on big, comfy dog beds, chewing on dog, uh, chewing on toys, and doing everything your typical dog is doing at home. For information on volunteering or donating, visit www.promise, and then it's the letter, the number four, pawsdogrescue.com. Promise for pawsdogrescue.com. Don't forget to follow MHS Muddy Paws and Promise for Paws on social media for updates on animals, fundraising events, and important uh, important mission each organization is fulfilling each and every day. The mission to serve the pets in need in our community and beyond with compassion, excellent care, and a better life is something that each animal welfare organization has in common. From Midlands, Humane Society, Muddy Paws, Second Chance Rescue, and Promise for Paws, Senior Dog Sanctuary, we want to thank you to the generous donors for giving a gift toward the care of the animals in need. We'd also like to give a big shout out to Harris Casino and Hotel in Horseshoe Casino for selecting our animal welfare organizations as your recipients for the recent Change to Make a Change charitable campaign. There's also a photo of three giant checks being held up by two women, each one. Moving on to our next story, titled, After Pain, My Own Body Was Frightening Stranger, by Claire Richmond. On that July morning, Bridget Schneider left the door for her plan- for <laughs> her fitness studio propped open, as if she knew how hard it would be for me to walk inside. I found her with a notebook in hand, ready to start my initial assessment. I was weeks away from marrying Michael, my partner of several of seven years, and wanting to feel stronger for our big day. The air smelled fresh, neat shelves of weights sat under the window, and the opposite wall was painted with a whimsical accent. I interpreted these details as aspects of a woman-owned gym, easing into the cozy charcoal-colored loveseat by the door I let myself sit back. Quote, were you thinking you wanted virtual or in-person training? We can also do a combination of both. Bridget perched at the end of a weight bench, balancing a laptop on her knees. Quote, in-person would be great. End quote, I replied. I benefit from the human connection. Quote, I want to understand more about what you'd like to get out of the personal training. End quote. She looked at me expectantly. Quote, I think you know I too have a chronic illness. End quote. I started. I don't make goals anymore. Everything I ask of my body is an experiment. I could... Once traveled the world on planes, missed nights of sleep, drank glasses of wine, and skipped meals without serious consequences. I have acute hepatic hep. I want to say this right. I have acute hepatic porphyria, or AHP, a rare metabolic metabolic disorder that provides chronic symptoms and acute attacks. My disease doesn't follow a schedule. High-intensity workouts provoke flares, and lingering paralysis leads to muscle rigidity and weakness. 
These days, I walk a fine line doing anything that puts stress on my body, including certain medications, food, and exercise. I went 19 years being told by medical professionals that there was no reason for my pain, that my invisible symptoms were the result of toxic stress and mental illness. By the time I received my diagnosis at 32, I was so brainwashed that even with the new information, I didn't take my body seriously. I minimized discomfort and pain by doubting illness and passing judgment on my new limitations. I gaslit myself. I lived with AHP-related chronic pain for years before I was able to advocate enough for myself that I had got help. The first pain specialist I saw refused to learn about my disease. At our first appointment, she told me I was half the age of the rest of her patients and would only work with me if I had a goal. Learning to accept my body's limitations and live in pain every day wasn't good enough. I never saw the practitioner again. I knew a pain-free existence wasn't realistic with AHP, and I was tired of pushing my body to, in pursuit of society's expectations. I was sick of punishing myself for my own acceptance or to accomplish some arbitrary goal. Goal setting is a sensitive topic for me, a competitive recovering capitalist. I used to be all about smart goals, but anymore this approach feels ableist and defeating. Now I adopt goals that are F-U-N, fun, or flexible, uplifting, and numberless. I first read on this concept from disability advocate and author Emily Liddell. I'm measuring my worth based on how well I live my values, not on what I accomplish or achieve. In Bridget's studio, I struggled to separate my mental, my medical trauma from my present fitness assessment. I turned my gaze toward a Himalayan salt lamp glowing orange on a windowsill and took a deep breath. Quote, we don't have to have specific goals, end quote, she assured me. Bridget opened up about her chronic illnesses and admitted she sometimes has to cancel at the last minute also. Quote, I'm scared of my own body, end quote. I heard myself say to the lamp, to Bridget, to myself. I had never uttered those words before, but I instantly knew them to be true. Catching a tear with the flick of my ring finger, I turned my attention back to Bridget. She nodded. Quote, I'll start you off slow. You may even be too bored to with what we do. End quote. That was fine with me. I scheduled a month's worth of twice weekly sessions leading up to the wedding and felt confident going into our first 30 minute training session. Bridget led me through a series of dynamic stretching and a circuit of strengthening exercises, all tailored to me. Driving home, I was optimistic. My muscles felt activated and not fatigued, allowing my body some space. I spent the rest of my afternoon sitting at, the, at my front porch with my journal, and the next day, I texted Bridget, let's ramp it up a little. I'm feeling good. On my wedding day, Michael and I danced to my girl. He spun me around, then held me close. Our steps in sync, thanks to dozens of lessons. You look beautiful, he whispered into my ear. I feel confident and strong. I smiled as he spun me again. 
I may never again know the freedom I had before illness progression, but if I'm too scared to try new things, my body will remain a stranger. Claire Richmond as a, is a writer, designer, and a rare disease advocate living in Des Moines. Moving on to our next story, titled, Bill Would Restrict World Language Classrooms, by Katie Obradovic. Republicans on an Iowa House panel voted to move forward with a bill that would restrict instructions of gender-neutral language by world language teachers in grades 9 through 12. House File 2060 would prohibit the introduction of gender-neutral terms in public and private school classes teaching a language that, quote, that utilizes a grammatical gender system, end quote. A subcommittee advanced the bill to the House Education Committee with two votes in favor. Representative Bill Gustav R. Des Moines said he proposed the bill after being contracted by two teachers who, quote, were being told to gender neutralize how they teach foreign languages that are by nature gender influenced, end quote. One of the teachers was facing disciplinary action and the other was, quote, going to quit her job, end quote, over the requirement, Gustav said. Some languages commonly taught in K-12 schools, including Spanish and French, traditionally assign genders to nouns. For example, house, which in Spanish is la casa, is feminine, and car, or el auto, is masculine. Some nouns referring to people are assigned genders depending on the gender of the person. El hermano means brother. La hermana means sister. The bill was opposed by representatives of several state education associates and LGBTQ advocates. A Des Moines North High School teacher and linguist, Ty Nias Nelson, told lawmakers that the non-binary Spanish pronoun ella is among the many vocabulary words that structures taught in class. Quote, Students do their best when they can be themselves alongside their fellow community members and when each of them feels seen, heard, and valued by others, end quote, Nelson said, and then continues on to, quote, banning instructions that affirms students' identities is harmful, obfuscating and reality of the diverse world in which they live and that they will inherit a counterintuitive in preparing them to be future ready, end quote. Keenan Crow of One Iowa, an LGBTQ advocacy organization noted that legislation passed last year allows students to change their pronouns with parental permission. Quote, now that we have this bill in place that requires trans and non-binary kids to get permission slips from their parents, their parents are effectively saying, this is how I want you to refer to my kid. And it doesn't get an exemption simply because of a foreign language class. End quote. Crow said, Oliver Bardwell of Iowans for Freedom spoke in favor of the bill, saying it's best to keep issues related to students' gender out of the classroom. Representative Heather Matson of Ankeny 
asked Gustav which school district were off ordering teachers to incorporate general gender-neutral terms. He declined to identify the districts during the meeting. Matson said she understood his reluctance to identify the districts in the public setting, but, quote, if this is an actual problem that's happening, then we need to know where that is happening in order to have a real conversation about it. Because just saying that, I'm hearing it, from teachers and saying like this is what you're saying without being able to subsidize it and filling legislation with that is in my opinion is legislative overreach is really concerning to me end quote representative henry stone for a city who supported advancing the bill expressed concern that iowa students would be learning a language a version of a world language that native speakers would not recognize. Quote, I agree languages are evolving, but it's not up to a school district and a, the state of Iowa to tell the entire world that speaks French that you're done speaking certain endings of your words and certain def definite articles, end quote, Stone said. Moving on to a couple obituaries for today. Clifford L. Lover, or Butch, February 22nd, bo uh, born February 22nd, 1943, and passed away February 11th, 2024. Clifford L. Lover, or Butch, died age of 80 of Council Bluffs, February 11th, 2024, at Jenny Edmondson Hospital. Butch was born... February 22nd, 1943, in Council Bluffs to Leslie E. Lover and Laura Colton. He graduated from Lewis Central High School in 1962 and proudly served his country in the U.S. Navy during the Vietnam War. Butch married Judith York on October 22nd, 1972. He was a truck driver for Briggs Trucking from 1968 to 1982 and then sold cars for McIntyre Oldsmobile Cadillac and for Roden Auto Center retiring in 2004. Butch and Judy moved to West Pueblo, Colorado in 2006, returning to Council Bluffs in 2020. Butch is proceeding in death by his father, Leslie Lover, Mother, Laura Potter, and grandparents, Pearlie and Wilma Lover. He is survived by his wife, Judy Lover, sons, John Presgrove and Kayla, Rod Presgrove and Connie Radcliffe, daughter, Jennifer Schultz and Kevin Schultz, stepmother, Bernice Lover, stepson, or grandsons, Corey Presgrove, Jacob Schultz and Keelan Schultz, brother Stephen Lover and wife Connie, sister Kathy James and husband Marvin, brother Bruce Lover and Marcy Lover, sister Jane Procopio and Nick, sisters Connie Wilson, uh, Janae Redfield, and Pam Wilson, brothers John Wilson and Benny Wilson, 
numerous nieces and nephews and cousins and special cousin Sandy Jewell. Memorial service Thursday, 11 11 a.m. at Cutler O'Neill Mayor Woodring Bayless Park Chapel. Military rights will be tendered by the Canesville Honor Guard. A lunch will follow at the Walnut Hill Reception Center, 1350 East Pierce Street. Memorial contributions are suggested to Humane Pet Services, 1928 7 Con- Conifer Lane, CBIA 51503. And for the next obituary, Seth, Tom- Seth Thomas Miller Jr. or Tom. Seth Thomas Miller Jr. or Tom, age 82, of Council Bluffs, passed away February 8, 2024 at Bethany Lutheran Home. Tom was born December 27, 1941 in Council Bluffs to the late Seth Thomas and Luella Davis Miller. He worked as a gardener for Glenwood State Hospital and later worked in the kitchens of Bergen Mercy and Nebraska Medicine for 30 plus years. Tom was a member of Emmanuel Church of the Nazarene. He is survived by his brother, Charles Miller of St. Petersburg, Florida, and other family members and friends. Cremation rites have been accorded. Graveside service and burial Tuesday, March 12th, 2024 at 3 p.m. in Cedar Lawn Cemetery. Housing out of reach. Lawmakers scramble as rent crisis mounts in U.S. Cost of living. Denver. Single mom, Caitlin Colbert, watched as rent for her two-bedroom apartment doubled, then tripled, and then quadrupled over a decade in Denver, from $750 to $3,374 last year. Every month, like millions of Americans, Colbert juggled her costs paying rent or swim team fees for one of her three children, rent or school supplies, rent or groceries. Colbert, a social worker who helps people stay financially afloat, would often arrive home to notices about giving her 30 days to pay rent and a late fee or face eviction. Every, or quote, every month you just got a budget and then you still fall short. End quote. She said, adding what became a monthly refrain. Quote, well, this month, at least we have $13 left. End quote. Millions of Americans, especially people of color, are facing those same painful decisions as a, rec- as a record numbers struggle with unaffordable rent increase. A crisis fueled by raising prices from inflation, a shortage of affordable housing, and the end of pandemic relief. The latest data from the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies released in January found that a record high of 22.4 million renter households, or half of renters nationwide, were spending more than 30% of their income on rent in 2022. The number of affordable units with rents under $600 also dropped 
to 7.2 million that year, 2.1 million fewer than a decade earlier. Those factors contributed to a dramatic rise of, of eviction filings and a number, a record number of people becoming homeless. It's one of the worst years we've ever seen, said Whitney Airgood, a senior research associate at the Harvard Center, who added that the level of cost burdened households in 2022 had not been since seen the greater the Great Recession in 2008, when 10 million Americans lost their homes to foreclosure. After failing to make a significant dent in the problem over the last decade, state and federal lawmakers across the U.S. are making housing a priority in 2024 and throwing the kitchen sink at the issue, including proposals to enact eviction, protections, institute zoning reforms, uh, cap annual rent increases, and dedicate tens of billions of dollars toward building more housing. The hardest hit have been renters who made less than $30,000 and who, after paying rent and utilities, were left with just $310 a month on average, Ergood said. Quote, so you can certainly imagine the kinds of trade-offs that have to happen, she said. Cost burden renters are spending less on things like food and health care and retirement, so there are significant implications for the long-term well-being of these households. In Denver, or end quote, in Denver, Colbert's bathroom roof partly caved in from a leak last year, and the landlord delayed a fix even as her rent went up $200 a month. It was the last straw for Colbert, who moved in to live with family and is purchasing a home through Habitat for Humanity, which gave her a low interest loan. Quote, it's so disheartening paying so much and not even seeing where your rent is going, end quote, Colbert said. Quote, it just hits you like this is for nothing, end quote. In Auburn, Massachusetts, pervasive rent hikes have also hit the last bastion of affordable housing. Just off an interstate alongside a pond, residents uh, at the American Mobile Home Park face rent increases upwards of 40%. Many tenants, mostly seniors and others on fixed incomes, have signed new leases with those increases. The group Lawyers for Civil Rights have sent a letter to the landlord accusing it of unconciable rent increases, sorry, and failing to provide critical services that adequate garbage and snow removal. Quote, how am I going to pay that? End quote, said Amy Case, 49, wondering how she'll balance the $345 monthly increase with the $200 she has to spend on medications and the cost of twice-yearly MRI to monitor her brain tumor. Quote, I don't know what else I can cut back on, end quote, said Case, an administrative assistant at a local college who said she would only have $300 left over each month for other necessities. And er, quote, probably less groceries. I certainly can't cut back on my medications, end quote. Another tenant, 72-year-old Ann Urbanovich, 
who works as a cashier at a department store, is facing a similar rent increase. Quote, I expected it to go up $100, but $345? I was shocked. End quote. She said, quote, I have to dip into my retirement savings because, you know, times are tough. End quote. The mobile home park owner, Parakeet Communities, did not respond to a request for a comment. With many families struggling to pay, landlords in Colorado are increasingly turning into evictions, with over 50,000 evictions filed last year, according to data from the Colorado Judicial Branch. Quote, 2023 was the high water mark for evictions filing in recorded Colorado history, end quote, said Zach Newman, co-CEO of the Community Economic Defense Project, which offers financial and legal assistance to Colorado residents struggling with rent. Monique Gant, the mother of two boys, stuffed her belongings into boxes in a Denver suburb recently after losing a drawn-out eviction fight planning to move between long-stay hotel rooms and her RV for now. Gant's hair has thinned from the stress she buries beneath a stoic face for her children. Quote, My kids, they assume that I am superwoman, end quote, said Gant. But, quote, When I go to take a shower, put some music on, I cry, end quote. Already, she said, her 10- and 11-year-old sons have been in fights at school and on the bus and aren't engaging with classes as they once did. About 40% of those facing eviction last year are children, some 2.9 million, according to a study co-authorized by Nick Grates at Princeton University Eviction Lab, who said research shows wide-ranging impacts of housing turbulence and eviction on children's mental health and development. Quote, we can see that things really fall off for children and experience eviction. Or we can really see that things really fall off for children that experience eviction. End quote. Grates said. In Congress, lawmakers are working on a bill that would expand a federal program that awards tax credits to housing developers who agree to set aside units for low-income tenants. Supporters say that could lead to the construction of 200,000 more affordable homes. Some lawmakers are also calling for more rental assistance, including a significant increase in funding for house vouchers. Quote, a larger commitment from the federal government is required, said, er, end quote, said Chris Herbert, managing director of the Harvard Center. Quote, only then will the nation finally make a meaningful dent in the housing affordability crisis, making life so difficult for millions of people. At the state level, Colorado lawmakers have proposed a bill to limit the reason for which a landlord can evict a tenant. Other bills would s- scrap the filing fee for tenants in an eviction case and roll back local rules prohibiting homeowners from renting out a separate unit on their property. Quote, if we don't act now, end quote, said Colorado government, go, or Governor um, Jared Polis in his State of the State speech last month, largely focused on housing. Quote, we will soon face a spiraling point of no return, end quote. Other states feel the same urgency. In Washington state, 
A bill would require that 10% of new housing around transit hubs are to be affordable for low-income residents. Another would bar landlords from increasing rent by more than 5% annually during a rental agreement term. In Massachusetts, a bill would invest over $4 billion toward building and shoring up affordable housing in response to the state's estimate that more than 200,000 additional homes will be needed by 2030. It would be the largest housing investment in state history. However, it would come too late for the rent increase Urbanovich faces to stay in her mobile home. Quote, my biggest worry, end quote, she said, quote, is not really having a place to move to. There's no place to go. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 13th, 2024 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm John Villarreal from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 515-243-6833. That's 515-243-6833. Moving on to our next story. We love dollar stores, but here's what can happen when they move in. By Ed Stannard. Dollar stores have proliferated in recent years, and study by a University of Connecticut economist has found that they contribute to less healthful food choices in the neighborhoods where they open. That's because independent grocery stores tend to close in the same areas where the dollar stores open. According to Professor Rigoberto, Lopez, whose research focuses on agricultural economics, quote, the dollar store expanding in the fastest growing retail format, and we also have seen a lot of family independently owned grocery stores going out of business, Lopez said, quote, so we tried to link the two and to find not just a statistical correlation, but also we find that indeed, when the dollar store comes to the neighborhood, these stores tend to go out of business as well, end quote. The low-priced dollar store. Primarily Dollar General, Family Dollar, and its subsidiary Dollar Tree, quote, is the most successful type of format that is proliferating all across the United States, especially in rural areas and food deserts, which are the most underserved areas, underserved areas, end quote, Lopez said. According to the study published in Applied Economics, Perspectives, and Policy, There were $35,000 stores in the United States in 2019, and they were, quote, among the few food retailers, end quote, that grew in revenue after the Great Recession of 2008-2010, outperforming big box discounters and retail clubs. Between 2000 and 2019, Dollar stores opening in a neighborhood resulted in a 5.7% drop in independent grocery store sales and a 3.7% decrease in 
decrease in employment and a 2.3% increase in the likelihood of the grocery stores closing, according to the research. The effects are three times more likely in rural than urban areas, the city found. The dollar store tend not to offer fresh produce and meats, with foodstuffs being limited to canned and boxed goods. Quote, in general, they provide an unhealthier food assortment and less services, end quote, Lopez said. Quote, they don't have a bakery, butchers, they don't have a lot of these, end quote. Dollar General disputes the characterization as offering only unhealthful items and notes customers depend on the business with goods they need and can obtain nearby, as well as providing local jobs. Lopez said the dollar store's business model is, quote, low prices, low cost, low quality, but a lot of the food that they sell is not healthy. It's processed foods that they can store, keeping fresh food and vegetables costs money, end quote. Dollar stores are not necessarily a negative if there was not a grocery store in the area before, Lopez said. Quote, public health advocates, they're against dollar stores, but a lot of people that visit the dollar store, they prefer to have a dollar store than not to have anything at all in some areas. But in general, we find if they are driving some of the local businesses out, then that is a negative trend, end quote. There is also a potential that a dollar store may be, quote, rupturing the connection to local communities in mom and pop stores. So that trend is negative, end quote. Lopez said, quote, so it's a mixed blessing, I will say, end quote. Caitlin Caspi is Director of Food Security Initiatives at the Yukon Rudd Center for Food Policy and Health and has researched small and non-traditional food retailers. Quote, historically speaking, basically most dollar stores don't offer any fresh fruits and vegetables and canned fruits and vegetables are the only option for produce. End quote. She said, though, she said it appears this has changed some in recent years. Quote, When we're comparing dollar stores to other small and non-traditional retailers that sell food, so that includes independent corner stores, gas marts, and pharmacy chains, even among that class of stores, dollar stores were really offering the fewest healthy options for of any small or non-traditional food retailer. End quote, she said. The issue is that dollar stores don't have the infrastructure for refrigeration, sourcing, and supply for fresh foods, Caspi said. So they can't offer those foods at a volume to be profitable. Quote, that's going to have consequences for people's diet quality because we know that fresh fruits and vegetables in a, is a cornerstone is a cornerstone of a healthy diet and recommended in all of the U.S. dietary guidelines. Caspi said, "Quote: It seems like for a long time historically they didn't have the mechanism in place to be sourcing and supplying these foods at their stores." End quote. Most foods sold at dollar stores is, quote, 
energy dense and nutrient poor, end quote, Caspi said, such as sugar sweetened beverages and candy. She said the median amount spent on food at such stores is $2.89 or $2.89, which the food containing 1,200 calories, quote, and more than half of that energy was from added sugar. So this doesn't paint a picture of a retailer that's providing a staple, end quote. While the daily caloric intake is generally $2,000 for a woman and $2,500 for men, Caspi said that statistic is, quote, reflecting the fact that this isn't maybe where people are doing major grocery shopping. So these are food retailers, but what is being purchased is not the cornerstone of a healthy meal or diet, end quote, she said. A Dollar General spokeswoman issued a statement via email, quote, With approximately 75% of Americans within five miles of a Dollar General store, thousands of our customers rely on us for convenient and affordable access to everyday household essentials, end quote. She said, quote, We believe each new store represents positive economic impact, end quote. All right, and for our last story for today, Support Our Local Animal Shelter has Siamese Mix Orange Tabby Ready for Home. This story is by Sammy Flott in support of uh, the Support Our Local Animal Shelter. Greetings from S-O-L-A-S, and welcome to our latest edition of Cats, Cats, Kittens. I'd like to start off with a very sweet girl who had a rough start but has since made a great recovery and ready to find her forever home. And there's a photo of a gray kitten named Kit Kat. Her name is Kit Kat and she is a beautiful, sweet, and spunky one-year-old short-haired Siamese mix. She was brought in with newborn babies and a horrible memory tumor. Surgery and some much-needed TLC helped heal this girl, and now she's waiting to meet her forever family. Very playful and loves her attention, so be ready for demands of lots of pets and loves. Come meet her and see Club Meow. For more information on Club Meow, visit www.clubmeowinc.com. That's clubmeowinc.com. There's another photo of an orange cat named Peter, a little older than the last one. Next up, we have an adorable orange tabby named Peter. He's four months old with a medium hair coat. He's got the, the purr box down pretty well, so don't be alarmed if you hear it go, often going as he sure is a lover boy. Peter is pretty laid back and mellow. He's a go with the flow kind of guy. He really enjoys his belly being rubbed. Yes, that's correct. A kitty who loves his belly rubbed. Peter has been well loved by his foster parent and ready to find his forever home. All of the pets and kittens from SOLAS are spayed slash neutered, vaccinated, and microchipped. SOLAS has a no brick and motor <clears throat> site requiring rental payments nor do we have any paid staff members. Every penny donated goes directly to the care of the homeless pets we foster. 
and every donation qualifies for tax exemption since SOLAS is a certified non not for profit charity. Contact us about making a tax deductible donation. It's a win win. Contributions to SOLAS can be made through our Amazon wish list at and they provided a URL via PayPal at paypal.me slash SOLAS pet adoption or via Chewy at and they provided a link as well. Again, for any additional information, please reach out to us. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 13th of 2024. The Nonpareil can be heard every weekday at 5 p.m. I'm John Villarreal from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, at high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active, young, and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, Nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest, but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. 
It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.